Hello and welcome to the Natural Birth Co. Podcast. Today we have my absolute favorite, wise, most inspiring natural birth worker, Brittany Sharp McCollum from Blossoming Bellies. Brittany is a childbirth educator, a doula, a lactation counselor, and a pelvic biomechanics educator. She is passionate about sharing evidence-based information with mothers and birth workers regarding her specialties. I myself have partaken in several of Brit's courses and have completely changed my view on how birth actually works and in turn completely changed my whole business. In this podcast, we talk about the truth on optimal fetal positioning and how it isn't evidence-based, what is true about bub's positioning at the beginning and during labor, how to labor with a posterior babe on board. We discuss deflex and asynclitic fetal heads during labor, the support person's role in labor, how do you support a woman through the transition phase, and epidural and inductions in the light of birthing naturally. I am so excited to get this podcast out to you guys, and I really hope you enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Natural Birth Co. We help women and their partners prepare physically and mentally for a natural and empowering birth experience. With pregnancy, yoga, Pilates, and workshops, all led by a registered midwife, we have a studio here on the Sunshine Coast, Australia. Otherwise, all of our services are available online. You can learn more at naturalbirthcode.com. If you wish to advertise on this podcast, you can visit naturalbirthcode.com forward slash pregnancy dash podcast. Now enjoy this ad-free episode. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast, Britt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Any chance to talk about the pelvis, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Amazing. So I discovered you, I can't even remember how I came across you. It was last year. Actually, no, it was from the Evidence-Based Birth Podcast. And um, yeah listen to it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these are literally the questions that I've been wanting to have answered for so long and couldn't find anything out there. And then came across your podcast and I was just all bloody about it with the dynamics. I really like putting logic behind, you know, intuition or the woman's body and what it's telling it and then finding out the actual logical reasons as to why they do it, which I feel like you just answered so many of those questions. So then I've done a couple of your workshops last year, which were amazing. And I'm so stoked to get you on for the mummers today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Everything you're saying is so true. I mean, there's, there's so much intuition behind birth and honestly, pretty much everything I talk about in my workshops is like, you actually know how to do this. But the thing is that our big thinking brains get in the way. And if we're not used to completely tapping into our bodies for labor and birth, then our brains are going to be like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. This position seems crazy, or this is not something we do on a daily basis. And there's no familiarity. There's no muscle memory. And so by understanding, just like you said, the logic behind it, the why behind certain positions, it puts our thinking brains at ease and allows us to more easily uh, tap into that intuition. And then I think as birth professionals, it's so important for us to understand why, because if we're sharing that information with clients, we need to be able to explain to them why what we're suggesting is completely different than anything they've ever heard before. Yes. <laughs> um, so that why is so important. Absolutely. And I actually find that with myself, but also with the parents and especially the dads that I teach, that if you just say a fact like 
you know, if your mum gets an epidural, do this. If she does this, do that. But if you can, they, they really struggle to hold on to those facts. However, if you explain it in a story, which is like explaining why that happens. When the woman does this, it means this is happening with the pelvis. So therefore we do that. It really sticks in their head and my head a lot more rather than just X plus Y equals Z. It's like remembering an algorithm is so much harder than understanding how to actually get to that end result. Yes, 100%. And I when, when I teach workshops to birth professionals, primarily when I'm teaching to like nurses, sometimes the, a really common response that I get is, well, all my patients are reluctant to move. Okay, so we have to meet people where they're at. We need to explain to them why movement is important. And some people will be like, oh, okay, for comfort. Well, that makes sense. But other people are going to be like, I don't care how my birth goes. I have no investment in the process. I don't care. So why would I move? Well, it's also really, really good for the baby. So I think for most people, laboring, even if they don't care at all how their birth goes, when they recognize that movement actually allows for better oxygenation of the baby, then they're like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try what you're suggesting. So when, when nurses are trying to incorporate movement with clients that might be reluctant, again, understanding the why behind it, not necessarily the biomechanical why, but although that's mm -hmm. part of it, but also understanding the benefits and how so many, I would even say, the, I would even go as far as to say all of the benefits of movement are things that are going to be beneficial for both unmedicated births and births with epidurals. Yep, 100%, 100%, absolutely. Yeah, that in itself, actually, I remember when, yeah, you started talking about that, the whole movement with epidurals and how we can still have these you know, more natural births with an epidural. That was a concept I had never, ever heard of, considered, thought of. And I was just mind blown in that moment. I was like, so <laughs> bloody true. Like, you know, there's no right or wrong. If you want to get an epidural, get an epidural. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, you know, sky high the rate of you having an instrumental birth or a cesarean section. Like if you want the epidural, we can still try to work really, really hard to try to get you to push baby out on your own. Um, for the sake of mm -hmm. the health benefits of, for both you and babe. So, yeah, that was a concept in itself, but we will get into that um, a little bit further down the track. <laughs> Don't get too ahead of myself. <laughs> so um, I, can derail, yeah. I, I can derail and go off onto things all the time, so I, I will try to follow your lead. <laughs> Especially when I'm so excitable about the whole topic. I'm just like, all right, keep it cool, Ames. Um <laughs> So do you want to start by telling us how essentially you got here in the first place and what you do at the moment right now with your business, with your life, with everything like that? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to keep it short. Um, I have been doing birth work for over 15 years out of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area in the United States. Um, I teach childbirth education classes to expecting parents. And then I also teach additional classes like infant care basics and lactation classes. Um, and then uh, the other kind of piece of what I do is pelvic biomechanics trainings for both clinical and non-clinical providers. So for clinical providers, that incorporates um, obstetricians, midwives, nurses, and then non-clinical support would be doulas and childbirth educators. And then I also teach pelvic biomechanical workshops for parents too, but that kind of falls under the umbrella of my childbirth education. Um, and yeah, I'm really uh, like totally honored to be able to travel and, and teach to practices all over the country. I'm so excited to be able to bring this information like international, um, especially with virtual classes and, and trainings. I mean, that's really opened things up in a in a way that you know was not even possible like no one was even thinking of you know a few yeah. years ago yeah. um and 
Yeah, and, and so I, I do that. Um, I do pelvic biomechanics trainings. I do childbirth education. I am also a doula, so I attend people in labor. Um, I don't do as much of that now because I do a fair amount of traveling and it prevents me from being on call. But um, I still, I miss it when I'm not at a birth for a while. So I try to get in several births a year, yeah. um, if not more than that. Um, and yeah, like I said, I've been doing it for over 15 years. I think the first five years or so, I really went um, like heavy into doula work. I did a ton of births. I was on call pretty much all the time um, and teaching a lot of childbirth education too. And after having my second son, um, I was going to take some time off from doing doula work. So I started teaching these really short two-hour workshops just about incorporating movement into birth. And it was intended for doulas in a sense of like kind of passing the torch. I wasn't going to be attending births as often. Um, and these workshops, like they were never done in two hours there was so much discussion and so much practice and like two hour workshops were like really taking like three hours and so we started i started increasing the amount of time um and then the, the workshops over the past 10 11 years have really just grown so much now they're full day eight hour workshops uh and they have contact hours approved by some of my workshops have contact hours approved by the american college of nurse midwives and then other workshops have contact hours through the pennsylvania board of nursing um so they've really come a long way and i it is in my long-term goals to like create a weekend long like retreat style oh, workshop around pelvis <laughs> but you know I, I i have a tendency to put together some really really long to-do lists and i have to like get better at kind of figuring out what is top priority priority oh, <laughs> the priorities are so hard i know you want to just do it all it's so Yes, that's that's the thing. Like, I have an idea, and I'm like, oh, let me write that down. And then I look at my list, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's there are not enough years to get through this. Um, yeah, and then I just personally, on a personal note, um, I have four kids now. So my oldest is 16, and I started doing this work soon after he was born. And then my next one is 10, and then my third one is seven, and the baby is about 18 months. Um, and that's it. We're done. We're done. Now I'm on a recording saying that we're done. So it has to be. Have to stick to it. My husband will kill me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, we live in, in New Jersey, which is like really close to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, oh. yeah. Awesome. That's my, that's my I love that. I love that. And were all your babes, um, home births, hospital births or Good question. My first son was born in the hospital and I did not have the experience that I expected it to be. Um, and I did not, I felt like, the expectations I had for my providers were not in line with what they were used to doing. <laughs> and I didn't realize that until it was really late in my pregnancy. And I finally started kind of demanding qu answers to the questions that I had. And then I, I really spent uh, the last few weeks of my pregnancy really stressed out, realizing that like they were not on the same page as me. And I thought I had done a pretty good job choosing a provider. I really was very thoughtful about who I chose, but I really did not understand the system in which I was birthed thing and that threw me for a loop at the end of my pregnancy and so my first son was born in the hospital and then my last three were all home births wow amazing was the first birth yeah. did it kind of end up going to plan like you had hoped or was it no. Oh. <laughs> no, not at all. I somehow squeaked by with a vaginal birth, which um, in hindsight was great because that prevented me from having to go the whole like VBAC route yeah. and, you know, finding support for VBAC. Um, not that, I mean, 
the support is out there and yes. I'm a huge proponent of you, but it's so hard to find providers that are truly supportive of vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, but no, my first birth was actually, we, we planned to go to a birth center. Um, I took castor oil to induce labor at 42 weeks because if I didn't go into labor by 42 weeks, I wouldn't be able to birth at the birth center. Yeah. And then my labor was very, very long and very drawn out. And we eventually transferred to the hospital and I had a fever and I wound up getting an epidural. And then three hours later, actually managed to somehow push out my son. Wow. <laughs> and I only say somehow push him out because I really, the, the cards at that point were very stacked against me. I did not, it just was not going as I had intended at all. And so wow. somehow I feel like that I'm really, I'm very lucky that it wound up happening vaginally um, because it could have been a whole other set of factors up against, you know, stacked against me in future births um, if yes. I was having having to have it be back. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. I, I usually do birth stories on the podcast, just a heads up. So that's why I guess I'm probably asking these questions. But I'm just interested. Yeah, yeah. Castor oil. I, we haven't used castor oil ever to induce yeah. babies. Like I heard that's a bit of an old school thing. Was that more common this 16 years ago or? Um, it's interesting because in our area, among certain providers, it is a fairly common thing to recommend if someone's either getting very close to uh, induction or if someone's water breaks and they're not yet in labor. Yes. Um, it's not by any means is it, it's not something that I, I've actually I've never seen a hospital based provider recommend it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's in other settings, it seems to be somewhat maybe not common but common enough that interesting yeah that it happens and I, you know there is some research that suggests it can be helpful at starting labor but the downsides are that it can cause dehydration and because it causes diarrhea more often yeah. than not and initiating the labor process having had hours of diarrhea and dehydration <laughs> is not ideal you know um yeah but i think for a lot of people it's like being stuck between a rock and a hard place when they yeah. make that decision and then it's just weighing out risk and benefit for for the individual and seeing what what feels right to them absolutely absolutely oh how interesting okay so <laughs> i feel like a good place to start this workshop is for you to talk about the whole idea of optimal fetal position because i was like a million percent behind the fact that loa <laughs> is the optimal position for every single woman and then doing your first workshop i was just like well mind blown okay i've got to change all my shit and it's been a big adjustment. It's been huge and it makes so much sense. It's one of those things that when you hear your when you hear the fact that of course every single woman has a different shaped pelvis, so therefore every single woman should have a different optimal position of their babe. It makes complete sense, but it's one of those things where you're like, How did I think that before? It's so surprising when you actually realise it. So do you wanna to talk to that a bit? Yeah, sure. So how many hours do we have? Because <laughs> this is so fascinating to me because, yes. as you know, I teach a really long workshop that kind of like explains the uh, historiographical context for the development of this idea of pelvic shape classification and the, the then the subsequent development of this idea of optimal fetal positioning. So I, you know, it's something that we could really, really go in depth with, but I'll try to give a synopsis of it that speaks to the point that you're, that you're um, kind of asking about. So um, there's this, there, there's this kind of 
continuing to be this perpetuation of this idea of pelvic shape classification. And in fact, pelvic shape classification is not supported by research. Um, this idea that pelvises can be divided into four basic categories, um, this is not supported by research. And this was a concept that came out in American obstetrics in the early 1900s and really took hold despite there even at the time being no well done research on pelvic shape. Um, but now at this point in time, we have a lot of research that's come out from not only obstetrics, but also anthropology that actually says there's no pelvic shape classification. There is such wide variation in pelvic shape that we cannot even classify pelvises into four basic shapes. But if we go back to that false theory of pelvic shape classification, that false theory divided pelvises into four basic groups. And they, the theory said that there was one pelvic shape that was ideal for birthing babies, um, needed babies to be in this LOA, left osput anterior position. And so because there was this one ideal pelvic shape for birthing babies, and then there was this one ideal position for babies to fit into that quote unquote ideal pelvic shape, this theory of LOA positioning really took hold in the late 1900s. Um, and really particularly among the midwifery community. It's not something that we saw quite as much among obstetricians. Um, obstetricians focus was not quite as heavily on, um, you know, necessarily support, not, 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 that's not the right word, not necessarily as, um, if, if things didn't wind up in a vaginal birth, they always could go to a cesarean, basically. Mm, like the, yeah. the tool of the obstetrician is the cesarean, which is great when we need it. When we need a cesarean, absolutely. absolutely. That's a really important thing. But then when it has the potential to discount things that could potentially increase the likelihood of a vaginal birth, if we know we could always go to a cesarean. But anyway, mm. that's a whole different, that's a whole different <laughs> hole to wander down. I know down. what you mean. Okay, Just preface, so, preface everything. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to this false theory of pelvic shape classification, four basic pelvic shapes, one of which is ideal for birthing babies. And this is not true, but this is what the theory is. And what's so interesting is that because this theory said this one optimal position for babies to be in, that ideal fetal positioning also started to be applied to other pelvic shapes. So even though within this false theory of pelvic sh shape classification, there are three other pelvic shapes that did not favor the LOA position, it was believed that babies should be LOA because it will still make for the easiest way for a baby to move through the pelvis. So total disregard for any sort of variations within the pelvic planes. Um, and this is where that idea of cardinal movements of birth all kind of grew out of as well. The cardinal movements of birth always begin with the baby in the LOA position as well. But anyway, again, yeah. let's not digress. Um, so this theory of optimal fetal positioning really went hand in hand with this false theory of pelvic shape classification. Now we have this new research, newer research that has come out that says there's in fact no way to classify pelvises because there's such wide variation in pelvic shape. And when there is such wide variation in pelvic shape, that also then means that there cannot be one optimal position for all all babies to be in. The optimal position for a baby to be in is in relation to the pelvic space available to them, not specifically one position that we should then say all babies need to be in. And this is what kind of is my driving force behind understanding the biomechanics of the pelvis, how we can create space changes within the different planes of the pelvis. Because when we realize that optimal fetal positioning is based on this false notion of pelvic shape classification, 
realize that they're, they're not evidence-based theories, it opens the doors for us to be able to utilize biomechanics universally in all births to support babies in whatever positions they are. Mm. For example, if we have a baby presenting posteriorly, but we know how to shift space at the sacral promontory, then that posterior baby is not malpositioned. They're positioned potentially how they need to be, and we have the tools to help them navigate that space. Amazing. So, <laughs> that's a nutshell. <laughs> um, but I can go more in depth if you'd like. <laughs> oh, well, that's so interesting. Like, uh, even the idea of, and I, I know we did the whole workshop on it, about posterior position babies. And correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially... <laughs> plenty of babies are actually meant to be in a posterior position, even if everything's balanced in the uterus and the pelvis, because of the shape of the mum's pelvis, that baby actually should start labor in the posterior position because that's how they need to navigate their way through. But then we can also have babies who are in position, uh, posterior position um, during pregnancy who aren't necessarily meant to be, and that can be due to things like um, imbalance in the ligaments or, or slouching and leaning back a lot in pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. Is that right? 100 percent yeah just like we could say you know we could have babies in the loa position and that can be really fantastic but there's also going to be people whose babies are loa and their births don't go you know smooth and swift and efficient so it's the same thing yeah same thing with posterior babies so we're not trying to discount the role that soft tissue plays at all Um, i think balancing and aligning soft tissue and paying attention to pelvic floor health and of course, if we have too much tension or too much laxity in different areas, or if we have um, too much tension around ligaments that can alter the way the uterus lies, sure, we can end up with babies that are not ideally positioned for the pelvic space available to them. But every posterior, every baby that is positioned posteriorly, not quote unquote malpositioned. Yes, um, that yes. baby may very well be positioned just as they need to be for the space available to them. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, so in birth, what I really love to focus on is understanding how we can both lengthen and release the pelvic floor as well. And I'm not necessarily saying with like, I'm not actually at all saying with body work techniques, but more so with the positions that people assume in labor. And then also create that space for the baby um, to descend and possibly rotate. What research does tell us is that most posterior babies do rotate, Mm. but again, we need to be able to give them that space to do so um, efficiently Mm. and effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, seeing as we're on the topic, another question I had was about posterior position babies. If your baby is meant to be in a posterior position and one of my mums, for example, this is her third babe and all her babes so far have been vaginally birthed posteriorly. um, What would your biggest tips be if you've started labor and you've got a baby in a posterior position? Yeah. Number one thing that I tell people, and this is actually regardless of whether their baby is posterior or not, but the number one thing I tell people for the earlier part of labor is actually to not lean forward all the time. Yeah. Um, to spend some time semi-reclining and some time doing pelvic tilts because when we do that, we shift the probably out of the way and yeah. it's not a huge movement that happens we get maybe about a half to a centimeter of additional space depending on somebody's own flexibility but a half a centimeter or a centimeter when you have a baby's head trying to nap their way down and out makes a huge difference yeah and so i would suggest actually some time in semi-reclined positions or pelvic tilt positions, resting back in the bed, resting back on the birth ball with some support behind you, like a partner or, you know, doula friend behind you. Um, And 
particularly if somebody's baby is posterior, because research does suggest that babies have a tendency to rotate clockwise, we actually may not want to spend time in all fours positions if the baby is posterior early on in labor, because babies tend to begin, when they're posterior, they have a tendency to begin along the right back of the laboring person's body. And then what we wind up ha having is gravity kind of work in the opposite direction of the rotation that the uterus is encouraging. And so when we have somebody with a posterior baby who spends so much time in all fours, because it does take some pressure off the back, we may actually be lengthening the amount of time yeah. spending in labor because and the uterus are kind of working against one another. Absolutely. So I would say get yeah, I would say get the sacral promontory out of the way. That's the number one thing. And if the baby really posterior, then I would suggest probably avoiding all fours or only doing it here and there when you need a little bit of relief on the back, but then trying to spend more time in upright or even reclined positions earlier on in labor. And I know for some people that are listening, they're probably like, what? <laughs> That's crazy. Yes. Yes. Because I yeah. remember in my trip, in the trainings that as a newer doula, as a new doula and new childbirth educator, Oh my gosh, it was all about forward leaning. Always, yes. always, always forward leaning. And then when we actually begin to understand the pelvis, wait a second, that's not always going to be the best way to position oneself. Yes, yeah. And in conjunction with what you were saying about um, the uterus contracting clockwise, I think you said it was clockwise, wasn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Like the combination of those yep. two things together is just so interesting. And that's something that I've tried to explain to my mamas, but it, it is really hard to try to explain to then use in the birth suite. However, yeah, as you say, um, feeling where you're feeling the contraction. So if you're feeling it in that back right hip, or if you're feeling it right on that sacrum or on the left, mm -hmm. like kind of listening to where you're feeling that as to where the position of your baby was. Um, I thought that was so interesting when you said that and where you feel those positions kind of leaning in that direction to help use gravity for babes to rotate around to the front. And they almost always take the long way as you were saying as well. So yeah. which is, I used to always be like, oh, cheeky baby, what a stitch up. But it's the uterus, the way that it, it um, contracts. It, it just has to move that way. That's, that's good of the baby to be moving that way. So I just thought that was so interesting as well. Posterior positions, who would have yeah, thought? I, mean, I know, I know. I always tell people I have such a soft spot for posterior babies. I think they get a bad rap. People don't understand how to support their navigation of the pelvis. And so there's definitely this idea that like a short birth is ideal. And I would argue that that's not the case, um, but mm -hmm. with like with that very commonly accepted goal of this short birth, then we begin to think that, well, that posterior baby should take the short way around. But if we're thinking about it from a space standpoint and from the rotation that the uterus is encouraging, that baby is actually more likely, just like you said, to take the long way around. Um, so we need to take that into account. So often we think about even so when we're thinking about positioning of the person laboring, so often we're only thinking about that. But the baby has all of these movements and shifts that they're making as well. We have to be able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in order to really understand what's happening and facilitate um, progress in, in labor. And it's interesting just to tap onto one of the things that you said, you mentioned how um, you, know, the, you might experience back pain along the right and then more centrally located in the sacrum and then along the left. And I know for some people, I think sometimes just based on the responses that I've got, sometimes people are like, oh, I don't think it's that easy to distinguish. It actually almost always in my experience with clients is. Like when I ask people, where are they feeling discomfort? And they say in their back, 
I, I usually ask them to specify, are you feeling it on the right or on the left or in the middle? And it can usually say, I feel it more on the right or I'm feeling it more on the left. And then when it shifts, they notice that. They notice that it's no longer on the right. Now it's on the left. Wow. And it's just about kind of, again, helping people to yeah. Yes. So interesting. <laughs> so, so interesting. Helping people tap into that, that intuition. Like, what are you feeling? Absolutely. And of course, they're going to say on their back because they're not knowing how specific you're wanting to get it. But sometimes you just need to kind of nudge that little bit further to get that more specific response. Like, we can't just, you know, ask one hard and fast answer and be like, oh, they don't know. Um, yeah. So, in regards to creating space and the actual way that baby descends through the pelvis and rotates. What's your thoughts on a babe being deflexed or asynclitic? Because I know that you mentioned in your workshop about as baby descends through the pelvic floor, it's quite a normal thing for baby to turn asynclitic for a moment. So for mums in the birth suite who maybe get told that after a vaginal exam, what should they think or do or what's going on there? don't like the word malpositioning and when you look at research on positioning of babies the word malpositioning is used all the time and it's used to describe babies that are posterior or asynclitic or babies who have an extended head and again when we look at the baby's role in birth and how actively involved babies are in the process of birthing themselves we realize that they naturally are going to extend their heads or tilt their heads at different points as they respond to tension and laxity in the pelvic floor and as they navigate the bony structure. So when I'm thinking of an asynclitic baby or an, a, an extended head, I'm never thinking like that baby's malpositioned. I'm thinking, let's make sure the baby doesn't get wedged in the pelvis like that. Let's make sure the baby has that space to keep moving because it's normal to get into that position or that presentation, but it's, it's not necessarily great if the baby is kind of staying like that for an hour and two hours and three hours and we have these strong long contractions but no progress in terms of rectal pressure or descent of the baby yes. then yeah maybe they're wedged in that position but the fact that they got into that position in the place that in my mind is a problem that's a normal part of the process it only becomes a problem when they have space to keep navigating downward if that makes sense Absolutely. So would you, because um, I teach in my workshops, which is what you told me about the whole rectal pressure, depending on what plane of the pelvis they're in. So depending on whether you're feeling that rectal pressure or not, would you, if your baby was asynclitic or deflex, you would work on really going hard at the positions to create space in that plane of the pelvis that babe's in? We're a bit frozen. Can you hear me? Sorry, do you mind starting that again? It just squeaked out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, so I love reminding people that movement can be really subtle it does not have to be dramatic so again like if somebody has pain medication they can incorporate lots of really effective subtle movements but i also love to add that if we know baby might be having a challenging time at a certain point in labor or if we know like okay baby's rotating through the mid pelvis at this point based on the amount of rectal pressure someone's feeling and or an internal exam 
the more dramatic we can make the laboring position, the more spa space change, the greater the space change we're going to give the baby. Yeah. So if we are able to really hike the leg up into a lunge, let's make sure we're doing that. But if we can't, you know, for mobility, for mo mobility reasons or flexibility reasons, we just do what we can. Yeah. But the more dramatic the position, the more dramatic the space change. So particularly when we're working with a with a scenario where a baby may be more likely to get kind of wedged in a position, um, which happens sometimes as babies navigate that mid pelvis and they're rotating and they turn their heads and then they tilt their heads to the side and sometimes they extend. And now if we don't give them dramatic space changes, we might wind up with a baby getting wedged. Yeah. So the more the, the areas of the pelvis that tend to be more narrow, and again, there's wide variation from person to person, but we do know that the pelvis is most narrow at the mid pelvis for most people. Um, like just in terms of the dimensions of the pelvis, it gets more narrow at the mid pelvis. Babies are rotating at the mid pelvis. So let's make sure at the mid pelvis, we're doing some really dramatic asymmetrical positions to kind of work with or give the baby that space to move out of asynclitic positions or extended head positions. Amazing. Amazing. It's so nice to have an answer because like, yeah, I have heaps of mamas that come and say that that was an issue in their birth and kind of they hear that and they think, all right, tapping out like, Babe's going to get wedged. This labor's not going to move forward. I'm going to end up in a Caesar. But as you say, it can be such a normal position to resume for a moment in time. Let's just create space to yeah. let baby click back into place and then continue on their way. And yeah, that's yeah. Not, that's so relieving, I think, for mamas to hear that. That oh, like Even if that happens, not the end of the world. Yes, absolutely. And I yeah. think people get... I work a lot with people um, who have done like at least a, a little bit of like searching online for things related to birth in preparation for their experiences. And quite often the things that I find my clients getting hung up about a lot are positioning issues with the baby. And so yeah. when we talk about what the research actually says and what the physiological process kind of entails with baby's dynamics, it really does give them a sense of relief, I think. Yes. Like it takes off a layer of anxiety when they realize like, oh, I don't have to be fearful of my baby getting wedged in, you know, with their head tilted to the side. I don't have to be fearful of a posterior baby because I know how to work with that. And yes. I would argue too that that goes for providers. Um, when a provider has the skills to support a baby who may be positioned posteriorly or asynclitic or extended head or compound presentation, the provider is uh, relieved from from an extra layer of anxiety because they have the skills to work with it, um, totally. and so that's that's huge. Totally, totally, totally. Um, what was I going to say about that? Anyways, I'll move on to the next question because it'll probably pop up. <laughs> um, I'm intrigued, and this is probably more for me. But with your birth education towards mummers. So you, got, you do birth education with parents and we all know that when we go into labor, the mamas often get into that reptilian brain and their logic's not there. They're not discerning, oh, wow, I'm feeling pressure here. So this means that I need to do this, right? So how do you go about giving that birth education in a way that mamas are going to be able to utilize in labor? Plus, how do you, um, like, what's the biggest things you teach dads for labor? How do you go about teaching them the most important things? Yeah, that's a great question. So I really do emphasize the importance of support. So when I teach childbirth education, um, I the the cost of my class includes the person giving birth and a support person. And if somebody's like, well, you know, I don't have a partner, so I'm going to come solo. I encourage them to bring somebody that will be at their birth, whether it's yeah. a family member, friend, doula, whoever whoever's going to be supporting them, because. 
Just like you said, the person laboring should not be like, well, I think my baby's here, so I should do X, Y, Z. No, we don't want to have to think about it when you're in labor. And yes, it's very intuitive and instinctive, but it's also kind of methodical when you think about the series yes. of positions that may give the baby the space they need. So we don't want to have the person laboring using their thinking brain at all. Um, so I really do aim a lot of my discussion about movement and positioning at partners or support people. Like you guys are gonna be the ones that are guiding them through movement. So it's really, really important that you remember what positions may create space at the top versus the middle versus the bottom of the pelvis. It's really important for support people that you communicate with them. Where are you feeling pressure? Or are you noticing that they're going to the bathroom a lot? That's going to indicate that possibly there's rectal pressure. Yes. So notice those little tiny kind of signs that things might be happening and hone in on that. Um, and I also really, really, one of the things that I really emphasize for support people is that sometimes in labor, this is not necessarily related to the pelvis, but sometimes in labor, you will do, you will feel like you're doing nothing and you are still extremely valuable. <laughs> Don't leave their side because even though they may not want you to touch them or talk to them or do anything, the second you go to the bathroom, they're gonna be like, where are they? I need them yeah. back. And so. It's like, don't leave their side and don't underestimate just simply the importance of being present. I mean, yes. we see that with doula research, that even just having somebody sitting in the room with you consistently through labor, that can decrease intervention and that can improve birth satisfaction, even when the person doesn't do anything. Yes. Um, so that's the thing that I emphasize. Absolutely. Me too. Massive advocate for that. Just being present. So she knows that when she wants you, you're there. There is nothing more comforting and safety than that for the mom. Absolutely. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. Um, how do you, when, like, I guess this is more of a doula question. When you're looking after your mamas in transition, what's your biggest tips to help them get through that transition? And I've actually also got an interesting question for you and I'm intrigued on your opinion. So, they, okay, so birth is the most intuitive thing, right? Everything happens for a reason. So, you know, every position that we'd be like, oh, I wonder why mama's getting into that position. We realize it's to create space in this certain plane, etc. So I'm a massive believer in everything that happens in birth is for a reason. Why do you think, evolutionary speaking, we go through this wild hormonal response in transition where we feel like we're going to die and we're so fearful, we're so doubtful, we're so afraid. Why do you think that happens? Huh, that's a really good question. So, so no one has ever asked me that before. And I, I like that. I like that you're putting me on the spot with that question. Sorry. And I had no idea that was coming. Um, so let me think. Um, I literally didn't even my, plan it either. It just popped in my mind. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I'll answer that. And then I'll go back and answer what you were asking before about transition. So off the top of my head, I think my response is that at least, the, okay, so based on what I share with people when I'm teaching classes, I look at transition as this like total identity shifting place in labor where you're forced to let go of your ego, where you are literally like walking this fine line between like really between worlds where you're like totally your whole, everything that you are about just kind of has to go by the wayside. Like there's no... There's no holding on to your ego. There's no holding on to your expectations. You just simply have to let go. But you have this 
this weird kind of dynamic of having to let go, but also needing to retain some sense of control so that you don't feel like you're suffering, right? We don't want people suffering through transition. And although I totally agree with you that transition is like the most challenging part of labor for most people. And I know in my birth transition always felt really crazy no one should feel like they're suffering through that either. You can feel like this is totally crazy and also feel like, but I can manage it. Um, and I think transition really sets us up to come out of it feeling like I could do anything in the world. Push a baby out, yes. no problem, because you just got through this crazy town of transition. Amazing. That's so cool that you say, I love that. I've got goosebumps at, at that identity <laughs> and ego shift. It's so true because as they say, you're birthing a baby, but you're also birthing a new version of yourself through every single birth. Yes. And especially that, you know, zero to one, like you're transitioning from maiden to mother, like you are totally changing your whole self. But that's funny you say that because I agree with the part about um, it's so hard, but I think that that's almost setting you up for the difficulty of being a parent like which is obviously the biggest challenge of all (laughs) so yeah that's really interesting putting you through that hardship so you do have the sense that I can do anything now yes absolutely absolutely and you literally come out of transition like a, a totally like a totally different person the birth process itself changes you but in terms of like how you your identity shifts through that laboring process i feel like transition it forces you to just like dig deep and realize that you had reserves that you never even knew you had and that's really powerful amazing amazing yes i also just a fun a fun side note i always tell people in my classes too that like as a doula transition is super fun and amazing because we see this person going from this very um kind of zen like very very rhythmic state of active labor into this totally primal, like, like, like tearing off their clothes, dry heaving, water might be breaking, like totally intense primal part of labor. And as a doula, I'm always like, oh, this is so fun. And then of course, as somebody who's gone through it, I don't feel that way necessarily when I'm going through it. But as a doula, it's so exciting because you can just see like all those layers just coming off. Like the primal part is just, it's just there. It's just coming out. It's amazing. Probably the most natural thing you could ever see, I reckon, transition. It's just like the most, yeah, animalistic, intuitive thing in the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, totally. Cool, cool. (laughs) So, yeah, how do you, like, guide your mamas and support a mama as a doula, but also in your workshops, how do you tell them so that they can feel like they're managing it, as you were saying? Because I think a lot of my mamas, they have a really hard time in transition. Yeah, transition is really tough. Um, it And I think, you know, again, it has to be in order for that identity shift to happen. Like we don't, our identities don't just change when, you know, with like your average day-to-day activity. <laughs> like, yes. like it has to be a powerful, emotional, physical experience so that true. really changes who we are. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a challenging part of labor that it's really difficult, I think, to truly have someone understand just in talking about it or practicing positions for it or practicing comfort techniques to truly understand what it's like. Um, but I do remind them of a couple things. Number one, that for most people, and doesn't apply to everybody, but for most people, transition is the shortest phase of labor. Yeah. And although this could work in your favor or not, your sense of time in transition, it has really changed because there's very little thinking brain activity going on, if any. So like, even though it's the shortest part of labor, you may have like literally no sense of how long you've been in transition because it's just simply contraction and short, short, short rest, contraction, short, short rest. Um, So I think reminding people that 
it's the shortest part of labor, but also you have no sense of time, which can work in your favor. That's really important. Um, I also remind people that the things that further disengage the thinking brain and take you to that primal brain, that's what's so important to hone in on in transition. So we're talking about rhythmical movement. We're talking about submersion in water, like getting into the tub or the shower if a tub isn't available. Um, I often tell support people that sometimes if the person is um, in transition and like maybe back pressure was working so well through most of labor, it's probably not going to work anymore. And that's okay. Like they, they might not want to be touched. They have to dig deep and find those reserves inside themselves. Um, and I also really encourage people to embrace all of that intensity, like recognize that this is what's taking you through to the other side. Mm. Um, and then when it comes to things like like uh, nausea and dry heaving, which are so common in transition. My favorite thing is to help people change their perspective on what they're experiencing. And nausea and dry heaving, like that's a great way to move the baby down. Every time, uh, uh, yeah, like the baby shifts a little. <laughs> so it's all about progress. Um, so that's important. And then if I was to give somebody like one specific technique that I would say is really important in transition, asymmetrical movement. If we can incorporate asymmetrical movement in transition, that's so helpful because babies tend to be right around the mid pelvis in transition. The baby is probably shifting, descending a little bit. And if we can really do asymmetrical and rhythmical movement through those contractions, it will help to move that person through transition a little more efficiently. Um, I like things where we're like, I'm sorry, what did you say? I missed that. Sorry, just amazing. Love it. Oh, <laughs> <Go> on. <laughs> yeah. So, things like lunge positions or even better, like walking lunges or like maybe not lunging like you're exercising, but raising your leg up, rotating it in circles, doing it on the other side. Mm. That type of movement is going to be so helpful through that phase of labor. Intense, and I'm not saying it's easy to do, but it will help that, pro that part of the labor to move a little more efficiently. And it gives you something to focus on as well. When people lock up and they don't move and they just, they're, they're hunching their shoulders and they're like pulling up onto the balls of their feet that's tension in the body and that's only going to make things feel worse and it's probably going to make that part of labor happen take, take longer and so if we're able to sink into the contraction and rock the body even though the idea of that might be so daunting it can be really helpful for progress which means getting past that part of labor a little more quickly amazing that's such great tips that's such great tips that's actually something that now i do recommend as well is as you were saying, getting into that reptilian brain, doing what you can, and as the support partner, doing what you can to get her back into that reptilian brain, out of freak out mode, even breathing yeah. with her to get her back really in tune with her breath as well. Um, so beneficial. That's really, really interesting. Okay, Absolutely. So and breath, can be, breath can be such a good focal point. Um, even if... person's experiencing a lot of discomfort and movement is such a great way to decrease anxiety levels, decrease the release of stress hormones. Um, and again, just like help someone feel like they're able to embrace and move through what's happening rather than kind of fight it. And our tendency when we're feeling a lot of pain is to, in, in life in general, is to hold our breath. We tend to tense up and hold our breath. And sometimes just simply that reminder to do long, slow breaths is enough to release a little bit of tension in the shoulders and a little bit of tension in the back and a little bit of tension in the pelvic floor so yeah the breath the breath thing I totally agree with that amazing amazing okay I have two more questions um in regards to an induction and I'm interested in the differences between Australia and America because um so we use syntocin which is a similar to your pit pitocin and um 
the thing that I personally find is the hardest thing about induction um, with my ladies is that they get induced for whatever reason, which is fine, but then we turn up that drip every single half an hour until they're contracting three to four contractions in 10 minutes. And first of all, I feel like a lot of the time having four contractions in 10 minutes isn't necessarily normal. Like a normal labor, it would be somewhat rare to have four contractions in 10 minutes, I feel. But then in addition to that, I don't know how effective we actually are testing the contractions or um, if we're actually giving the body enough time to respond to the increase of the drip before we're turning it up again. And then the women hyperstimulate and then that cascades into a whole bunch of drama. Um, What's your biggest (laughs) tips to induction? And do you find that happens the same where you are or what's your thoughts? Yeah, it seems really similar. Um, we usually say that with Pitocin, which is what's used here, um, we, you know, in c- contractions, the, the goal is to get contractions to being about two to three minutes apart, full minute long, which is very similar to what you just said, three to four in, in a 10 minute period of time. And the concern in my mind with that, just like you mentioned, is that that's like transition. And for somebody to have contractions like that through the duration of their labor, can definitely set up the cascade of interventions, whether it's due to distress in the baby or hyperstimulation of the uterus, can absolutely increase somebody's likelihood of getting pain medication, which brings its own potential risks. Um, so it is very, it sounds like it's very similar to, to what happens here. Um, there are two things that I really think are important to remind people with induction. Number one, you have a voice. So the entire, pro- even if like the induction was not the original plan and now you're like, oh no, I have to have this induction, you still have the right to ask questions along the way, to gather information, to be part of that decision making. And sometimes I think when things don't go according to plan, people feel like now all of a sudden they just have to throw all their preferences out the window. And that's not the case, you know? So I I really remind people that even if things are not going as you had hoped, or if you're, you know, accepting an intervention because you feel comfortable with it, either way, you still have the right to ask questions along the way. And what research um, uh, based on surveys that have been done tells us is that it's less about whether something goes according to plan, but actually more about whether someone feels in control of the decision making as to how positively they look back on their birth. So when they feel like they were part of decision making, there is improved birth satisfaction even if birth did not go according to quote unquote plan. Um, and so I really remind people of that with an induction, because like you said, it can, it can wind up leading to a lot of drama. It can, things can happen quickly in an induction. So let's head that off from the start by asking questions along the way and making any preferences we have known so that we're part of what's going on rather than feeling like something's happening to us. Um, yeah. And was there a second part to your question? No, I think, I think that's it. So your biggest tips for an induction, um, to kind of not run off with that cascade of intervention would be to be the primary decision maker and still make your preferences clear. Absolutely. Yes. And then of course, because I can't not say this, incorporate movement. Like remember that movement is important and movement is important even in, of course, even in induction. But let's say somebody's being induced and they decide to get pain medication. Like we're kind of circling back to what we said in the beginning. A movement should not stop just because an epidural was given. And I know like uh, nurses can't necessarily be in the room the entire 
and it's, it would be impossible for nurses to be in the room the entire time supporting movement. But there are props available, things like the peanut ball. And um, when support people can rock the peanut ball or shift to help someone shift how their legs are positioned, even something as simple and safe as that can change space in the pelvis. So there's no reason not to incorporate movement into births with an epidural. So again, if we want to decrease rates of intervention, decrease cesarean birth, decrease risk of instrumental delivery, whether somebody has an epidural or not, movement has been shown to have all of those benefits and should yeah. be something that's incorporated. So it, the thing is that, you know, nurses have to be really well-versed in utilizing effective movement and support people do too. It's so much better when everybody works collaboratively. Um, if we have a nurse that's like really uh, totally understands movement, but we have a support person that's like totally reluctant to be involved, then that can be hard. Just like if we have a support person that knows all about how to incorporate movement, but every time the nurse comes in the room, they're like, oh, you can't do that. Or what are you doing? Or, you know, we don't do that here. Yeah. That can be really hard. So when everybody is well-educated about the importance of movement and birth, then we can really work collaboratively and really, really begin to see those benefits and even statistical changes um, in terms of birth outcomes. So Amazing. movement is important. I totally yeah. agree. That was actually going to be my next question was how to incorporate <laughs> movement in an epidural or what to do with an epidural. But essentially your answer is move, keep moving. Move. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I post a lot of stuff on social media, like videos and things like that. And I get all sorts of comments from people that I, I have, you know, obviously have no idea who most of the people are. And people will say things like, you can't move with an epidural. Not true. We're not talking about like necessarily walking across the room because the way that epidurals are provided here in the U.S., that's not an option. Um, but we're talking about like rotating the thighs, like having the thighs farther apart versus closer together. That's a position change yes. or sitting semi reclined in the hospital bed versus literally raising the bed so that it's at a 90 degree angle. That's a position change. So it can be so simple and subtle. And I think when people think about movement, they think about big dramatic movements, but simple, subtle, small movements that shift space in the pelvis or shift the way that gravity is working on the baby can make a huge difference. And so, yes, I mean, Maybe we can't do huge movements with an epidural, but we can do simple, subtle movements. And I have done with my clients who've had epidurals, I do all fours or kneeling positions on the bed all the time. Um, so I know that it's possible. It is possible. Maybe not 100% of the time is it possible, but I've done it. <laughs> like I know it's something that can be done. Um, so, you know, epidurals take away that sensation. They don't decrease a lot of the mobility that people have. So we just need to work within some limitations um, and do it in a safe way and then we realize that movement movement within the pelvic space can happen even with subtle things like how the sacrum is shifted or how the thighs are rotated yes amazing I actually just saw your post the other day and because I did um, a bunch of photos for the dad's birth booklet of different positions mm -hmm. and I loved it so I did photos of this one where you're sitting up in bed and they're sitting on their sits bones not on their sacrum and you're kind of sitting how I am now and literally one leg kneeling up and then you swap the legs and then you <laughs> You were in diamond pose and then you had both legs up, one leg long like this, one leg long like that. It's just, that's like 30 or 40 contractions if you're doing changing every five um, yeah. of just in the one position, like pretty much, yeah. and you're just moving your legs around. So yeah, you can absolutely change the yeah. movement, change the position, um, do little rocking things throughout. Like there's so much you can do and that's such a cool perspective because yeah, some people, um, which it's totally their choice, they just aren't interested in birthing without an epidural that's cool let's still see what we can do to um you know help you have a normal birth yeah I'm a massive believer in that mm -hmm. in my biz and this is something I'm always reiterating especially 
I don't know about you guys, but here on the coast, there's a massive um, influx of people free birthing. Um, mm. And yeah, I guess personally, I'm not a huge fan of it, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a big believer in we don't have to be zero or 100. Like we don't have to be 100% natural or 100% medicalized. So sometimes, you know, getting an induction is the safest choice for a healthy mom and a bub. And the best way to do that induction is to, is to, is to have the induction. But then we can still do heaps of other things to prevent the epidural, the instrumental birth, the cesarean section, etc. So... I think it's really important having that balance and constantly having that, like, I guess, responsible decision-making throughout the whole process. Yeah. And, and yes, I, that, I, I agree with you so much about that because it's about having individualized care, not just saying like, okay, well, 95% of the people who give birth here get an epidural. So we're just going to expect you to get an epidural. Well, how about we meet this person where they're at? Like, let's take step, things one step at a time. Let's make decisions one step at a time. Let's make sure the person laboring is part of that decision-making yes. rather than having these just kind of routine things thrown at them. Um, so I really, I'm a huge, huge advocate of an individualized approach to birth, even within a setting or a system that does not is not catering to the individual experience, we can still go in as pregnant people, as laboring people, we can go in and demand that our care be provided in, on an individual basis. But I think it comes down to like a prenatal education piece of it because people don't know. They don't know that they can make requests and yes. share their preferences. And I think, you know, in in my area, providers are very willing to work with people that want to do something differently. But if the person doesn't even know to ask for it, then nobody is necessarily going to offer anything different. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's not going to be offered or often even asked as a question. It's going to be told, but it's up to you to say, actually, no, I don't want that, even though you didn't ask me, but I'm letting you know or or letting them know your preferences because you're not necessarily going to be asked. I completely agree, which can be really hard for people is like especially if they're not health professionals like health professionals can be super duper intimidating especially when you know you have a preference that's against recommendations and then they get you know the team leader and then they get the doctor and then they get the higher doctor to all come and talk it's so intimidating for like even me if I'm a a worker saying that this woman doesn't want this so I'm not going to do it it's let alone being the woman themselves who aren't in the field it's super duper intimidating yeah, yeah. And and that's so interesting that you say that because um, there's that peer pressure from within the system of professionals, as well as the pressure that the person who's laboring feels to conform to whatever the, the yeah. kind of protocol is. Totally, totally. Super duper quickly, because I have a little yeah. little bit more of your time. Um, I'm intrigued on going back to your birth story, if you don't mind, because this is a big oh, question sure. that I have with my <laughs> parents, where your first babe, um, you got to almost 42 weeks. And were your second, third and fourth babies, did you have longer gestations with them as well? And that's just how long your body took to cook them? Oh, I love that question. So my first son came right on 42 weeks. Um, my, and that was the castor oil experience that I shared earlier. My second son came at 42 weeks and three days um, without any sort of induction method. Um, my third baby came at 41 weeks and one day wow. without any sort of induction method. And then this fourth one totally threw us for a loop, 38 and five. So <laughs> without any induction. And I 
was full on like I, I actually my my water broke first and I was like oh my gosh my water broke and I'm gonna be pregnant for another three weeks like how is this what are we gonna do and I was like should we even call the midwife what like I was totally and here I am like I know the research I have trust in my body and still fourth baby I was told he totally threw me for a loop and then within like two three hours contraction started and then wow. from like 11 p.m. to 1 30 a.m. I was in labor and he was born what? <laughs> so, it was crazy yeah but so I I my second son was that was crazy because he came after my first like longer gestation which I thought for sure he would come earlier um, the third one totally like you know kind of caught me off guard because she came a lot earlier but still like a you know a little bit of longer pregnancy yeah but that fourth baby 38 and five I couldn't I it was crazy when you've also like probably with the same partner I think had a 42 and three like that's such a huge discrepancy that makes no sense in my mind I find that really interesting so how did you go about like what's your like the facts I guess the research and how you went about having the confidence to go past 42 weeks um yeah do you know the actual stats for like a low-risk pregnancy etc I would have to look into it. I don't want to share statistics that I'm not 100% sure of. I remember for, like, for me, I felt really, like, again, going back to taking an individualized approach. What I, the choices that I make in my births are not what I, I actually don't even share my birth stories with my clients at all. Um, So it's funny being asked about it. I really don't talk about my births that much. Um, But... I really try to emphasize the the choices that I make are based on my own individual experience and not what I'm recommending for anybody else necessarily. Mm. Um, but for me, I really trusted in my body. I knew that my pregnancies were healthy. I was really conscious of like eating well and exercising and like just very, very conscious of like doing the things that were within my control to grow a healthy baby and have a healthy pregnancy. Um, and for me, the potential risks involved with something like induction outweighed the benefit. Um, in my mind, like we hear scary statistics, we hear things about increased risk of stillbirth, um, and we hear things like, again, like I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but um, we hear about like the scary numbers, but then the other thing that we have to do sometimes just to like see all sides of it is to flip it. So like if, if we have like, let's say we have a 2% chance of XYZ happening, that means we have a 98% chance of XYZ not happening. Yeah. So we have to look at it from both sides, and then individually, that individual person has to say, what odds do I feel more comfortable with? And the answer is not going to be the same for every person. Um, But for me, like knowing my body, knowing my pregnancy, knowing my past pregnancy too, um, knowing that like, for example, my mother's pregnancies were on the longer side, um, like taking into account those things as well as working with a provider that I trusted, um, staying in touch with my provider very frequently towards the end of my pregnancy, I felt comfortable going past 42 weeks uh, for my own individual pregnancy um but again like that was a very very individualized decision that's not something that i think everybody would be comfortable with and that's fine it's just very much about taking into account like the you know the evidence-based decision making process which is the research and then a provider recommendation and then your own individual priorities and preferences and figuring out how they all fit together so that you can make a decision that feels right to you um and that's that's what felt right to me was to continue being pregnant for really what felt like a really Oh, it would have been so long. Although your perf- your first birth is like a perfect example of what happens so often when we try to have a labor before the body's ready. Like it just does end up 
being prolonged and just being a bit more awkward and not fluid and not progressive and it's just a perfect example. So I'm so, yeah, so stoked to hear about that. And I did love, I hadn't heard of that evidence-based decision making that you talked about. And it's funny because I actually teach something very, very, very similar um, in yeah. my birth workshops. But, um, and also, I don't know if you've read the book, How um, Why Induction Matters by Rachel Reed. No, I have, uh, I have not read that. Phenomenal. Too, she was, I do love Rachel Reed though. <laughs> you do? Uh, well, I was lectured by her at uni and it's always like my little claim to fame moment because I freaking love her. Isn't she just yeah. so cool? And um, totally. yeah, I love all of her books and her induction book goes into a really great um, decision-making process in regards to induction. But I love that whole taking into account your own values and what you're, own, you're, you're comfortable with and with your partner as well. And what you guys are willing to risk because with every, you know, day older that you're maybe potentially increasing that risk of having a stillborn, you're also got to take into account the risk of an, an induction because that is a risk in itself and it does increase risk of, you know, epidural, um, instrumental births, cesarean sections with come with all these risks of their own. So it is important to consider. It's not like a pride thing completely. It is very much weighing up the risk but first benefit of both. Yeah, and, and I love that you touched on that because far too often induction as is suggested as if it has no risk associated yes. with it. It's like we have risk going farther into pregnancy, but we can avoid that risk by just being induced. But then the conversation doesn't include risks of induction. Totally. Um, and yeah, and so I think that that's really important for people to realize. And that's why, again, like there's no right or wrong. It's about what risks do you feel most comfortable with and under what circumstances are you making these choices too? Yeah. Um, again, like if there were all sorts of red flags in late pregnancy, well, then it might make more sense <laughs> to like, you know, if I was 42 weeks pregnant and had a whole bunch of red flags coming up, well, then that would be something to consider for sure in my decision making. But, you know, again, like in individualized approach and weighing out risk and benefit of Every option mm-hmm. um, is really important. Love it. <laughs> love it. Love yeah. it. So much good stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Britt. Oh, gosh, you're welcome. I feel like we could just keep going on and on and on. Oh, I love forever. having conversations like that. Forever, forever, forever. If a, another, I always find, um, yeah, doing the birth workshops and talking to the mamas, they often pose very fantastic questions that I don't know the answer to. So when a few more stock up, I'll heat up again and maybe we can have another podcast. Oh. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. And by no means do I have the answers necessarily, but I do love to talk through it. And I think it's just so fun. And there's just always so much more to learn and just so much to learn from each other too. And so we're talking and it's just, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a wonderful workshop tonight and I'll talk to you later on. Thank you you so much. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being here. All of these podcasts are recorded live in our Facebook group, so you are not only able to be the first to listen and watch the podcast, but you are also able to ask questions throughout the podcast. If you wish to jump into the Facebook group, the link is in the show notes. I would also really appreciate if you left a five-star written review, share this podcast with someone who would appreciate, or even share your recent listen on your social stories. Lots of love. Thank you.